Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Mississippi's Economic Council held its hobnob yesterday. The annual event provides lawmakers and other leaders an opportunity to lay out their visions for the state's economy heading into a new legislative session. This year, there's much to discuss, from medical marijuana to vaccine mandates to equal pay. MPB's Kobe Vance was there. He caught up with House Speaker Philip Gunn. Well, I addressed three things today. Of course, they only give you a limited amount of time, so I had to pick the ones that I thought were most relevant to this group and to the, the time where we're living. I, I addressed the, 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 the vaccine mandates that the Biden administration is putting down and how that affected our employers and our employees. And it's putting both the employers and the employees in a very difficult situation because the employers are having to decide between respecting the rights of their employees to make their own health care decisions and or being uh, continuing to be functional and operational. I've had employers tell me that some of their employees just refuse to get the vaccine and they're going to they're going to walk out. Now that further hampers the efforts of the employers to produce their products, maintain the same level of service and be profitable. So those this is a real unfortunate challenge that they're being faced to deal with. The employees of course are having to decide between their own health care, the freedom to make their own health care choices and their jobs. So uh, I just basically said we recognize the issue. We're trying to find a solution. We're trying to find a way to address this. We're working hard to, to try to get a solution there. The other thing I, I touched on was the American Rescue Act and no funds that um, that have been that have come down from Washington and, and our expenditure of those funds. Just making sure, assuring the people that we're working hard to try to figure out the best use of those dollars. And then the third item was workforce. Workforce is a a big deal in Mississippi, and this is the main focus of this organization, so it was very important that we talk about our efforts to improve workforce and um, meet the challenges that MEC faces in the area of workforce. So those are the three things that I talked about. On workforce, what do you see as something the legislature can do in this upcoming session to help improve workforce development here in Mississippi? Well, we've passed a couple of bills last year that, that passed the legislature and, and the governor vetoed them, but they are designed to increase emphasis on workforce training, create more and, and, and better employees 
to go out and, and serve in our in our workforce sector. Um, what do you think the change that would prevent another veto? I, I don't know. We, we, we were informed that there was some concern over that there might be a loss of federal dollars. That turned out not to be true, as I understand it, and so the, the basis could have been in, uh, based upon inaccurate information. But in any event, we plan. I've met with MEC. I have met with um, our new workforce development director. I have met with the, the SWIB board director, and we are focused on trying to craft a bill that addresses their concerns and produces a very high-quality uh, piece of legislation that will cause our workforce to meet the needs of the employers around the state. So that's that's what we're trying to do. That's where we're focused our attentions moving into the next session. Uh, in your speech earlier, you were saying how uh, the state of Arkansas is pursuing a lawsuit against the president for against the, the mandates, um, and you're asking the attorney general to uh, pursue that as well. Do you think the legislature is going to consider any you know laws here in Mississippi to prevent mandates? Well, that's one thing we've looked at. Uh, what, what legislative action can we take? And right now we're struggling to find what that legislative action would be. Uh, anything the legislature does obviously is superseded by federal law, so I'm not sure what actions the legislature can take. We're still searching for that, working to find that. Uh, what I said was the, the best solution that we see right now is the lawsuit that is Arizona. If I said Arkansas, I misspoke. That's, that's Mimi speaking, sorry. But it was Arizona that has filed that we are looking at, we think may potentially provide some good uh, a good answer, good solution, and I plan to bring that to the attention of Attorney General and let her evaluate if that's a good good avenue or not. But uh, I think the frustration that people have is that there is no clear, solid solution uh, that we're you've yet come up with. On the terms of medical marijuana, uh, there's been a big talk in the state for a while. How are talks going in terms of the possibility of a bill, and do you think there's going to be a special session now that we're still getting pretty close to the end of the year? Well, we have got a bill. We've agreed. This legislative, the Senate and the House have come together. We, we got a bill. Uh, we've announced that. We're ready to go. So if it's a special session, that's up to the governor to call it. And then last question, um, do you think, uh, back on the vaccine mandate thing, do you think uh, private businesses should have the, the right to choose if they want to mandate their employees to have a vaccine? Well, we have maintained the rights of the, the private business to run their business like they want to. Every business owner should be able to run his or her business like they see fit. I think it's a dangerous slope when the government starts stepping in and telling them what they have to do and should should or should not do. I just don't think that's the road we need to go down. Philip Gunn, the Speaker of the House here in Mississippi. Speaker Gunn, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Coming up, what Mississippians need to know about COVID vaccine boosters. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Health leaders in the state say they welcome the FDA's expanded green light of booster doses of COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Paul Byers, who's the state epidemiologist, notes the list of circumstances that qualify someone to receive a booster has grown to include a significant number of Mississippians. Eligibility is really based on what your initial or your primary vaccine series was. 
if you received two doses of Moderna or two doses of Pfizer as your primary vaccine. And it's been at least six months since you completed that series. And you fall into one of the following categories. You're 65 or older. You're a resident of a long-term care setting. You're over the age of 18 and you have underlying chronic medical problems that increase your risk of having severe outcomes if you were infected. Or if you are over the age of 18 and you work in a higher risk occupation that increases your risk of exposure or potential for transmission, such as a healthcare worker, then you are eligible for a booster shot. If you received Johnson & Johnson, and it's a lot simpler with Johnson & Johnson, if you received Johnson & Johnson as your initial primary vaccine, one dose, and you've been two months or more past that dose, uh, and you're over the age of 18, you are eligible for a booster shot. Mississippi's Department of Health has championed aggressive medical interventions against COVID infection throughout the pandemic. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs was an early supporter of boosters for older and at-risk people. He also continues to extol the virtues of monoclonal antibody therapy. Now, as booster access expands, the health department's message remains the same. If it's right for you, go get it. Here's Byers again. You know, if you think that you fall into one of those categories, we encourage you to get a booster. Remember that on our scheduler, and most uh, pharmacies are doing this as well, it's a self-attestation. So if you feel like you fall into one of those categories, postal worker, if you're a healthcare worker, if you work in a healthcare setting, if you live in a setting, where there may be a, an increased risk of, of transmission or exposure. Um, if you're uh, working in a K-12 setting or a child care setting, or if you're a first responder or an EMS worker, we have pretty broad categories for um, who would be eligible under those criteria. The FDA says it's okay for Americans to get a booster of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, no matter which brand of shot they got originally. Coming up, bleak realities and enduring hope for black farmers in the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Across the country, U.S. agriculture is seeing a decline in black farmers. That's especially true in the South, where some farmers say racist federal and local policies are to blame for their incredible loss of land and generational wealth. And the stress of that loss is creating health problems. Shalina Chatlani, healthcare reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, is joining us today to talk about her reporting, which was centered in Iberia Parish. It's a sugarcane and oil-rich region at the intersection of southern Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. Hi, Shalina. Hey, Karen. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your reporting. Sure. Well, I went to a part of Louisiana that has a long history of slavery and plantations. For a long time, it served as the backbone of the sugarcane economy, which is still very prominent today. Unfortunately, a lot of the Black farmers I spoke to in this parish say that legacy of racism lives on in modern-day policies around credits and loans from institutions like the U.S. Department of Agriculture, banks, and even other institutions like local sugar mills 
which can help give financial backing to farmers. So how does that play out in land loss? Sure. Well, most of the farmers in this parish lease land. So there are property owners. The property owners form contracts with these farmers, and they get a certain percentage of the profit. And that's how it's been for a really long time. So a lot of Black farmers, I spoke to say that these policies that make it hard for them to get the credit and money they need to pay off debts, to buy new equipment so they can have better yields on their land, has made it so that they are losing these leases that they've had for generations with often white property owners who then think they can do better with someone else who might be able to give them a better yield and more profit. And usually that ends up being white farmers who maybe are getting better credit, have more money, more resources to have better equipment. One farmer I spoke to, Eddie Lewis III, who is a fifth-generation sugarcane farmer, and he's also Black, once had leases to farm 4,000 acres of land. Now he farms half of that. Another set of generational sugarcane farmers who are also Black, the provosts, say they once farmed 5,000 acres of land. Now they only work fewer than 100 acres. How did this all happen? What's the history behind this? So, you know, it wasn't always this way. At the turn of the 20th century, a lot of wealthy African-Americans in the South were landowners. They've been mostly concentrated in this region, especially along the Mississippi River and the Delta region when it comes to farmers. But property lawyer Thomas Mitchell of Texas A&M University School of Law said, you know, through sheer determination and effort, many formerly enslaved people gained land after the Civil War through war grants, becoming sharecroppers, or working multiple jobs to slowly earn enough to buy property. But he said by the end of the 20th century, the land they had amassed went down from a peak of about 20 million acres to between 2 and 7 million acres. So just an incredible loss of land. Mitchell says the preliminary estimates of that loss of the land itself is worth about $300 billion. So for context, that's more than the GDP of some countries like Portugal. Here's Mitchell. Through extra legal means in terms of lynching and violence and intimidation, there's just been an incredible sapping of generational uh, wealth. When you look at farm statistics, Today, Black farmers only represent 1.4% of the over 3 million farmers in the U.S. Since the 1920s, that's a drop from nearly a million Black farmers to around just 50,000. And they own half of 1% of farmland in the country. There's one report from The Atlantic from from 2019, which says that just in Mississippi, between the years of 1950 and 1964, Black farmers lost almost 800,000 acres of land, which amounts to nearly $4 billion. You had mentioned that all this loss and the racism around it has been hard on the health of the farmers? Absolutely. The provosts say the erosion of their livelihood is taking a toll on the health of local Black farmers, with them or their family members having dealt with issues such as strokes, hypertension, heart attacks, and even contemplating suicide. Here's June. It's a slow death. I mean... Because since we've spoken out, I mean, so many other Black farmers around this area, you know, came to us literally crying and saying, you know, similar happened to them. And when it comes to Eddie Lewis, his own father died unexpectedly in the middle of a sugarcane field at the age of 49. 
And Eddie says he's worried about his health as well. What are the black farmers that are left doing to push back? What's next? Well, like many farmers, Lewis and the provost believe they might find the money they needed to pay off debts and buy equipment to stay competitive through the USDA. Buried within the 2021 American Rescue Plan is a debt relief initiative for disadvantaged farmers. But those payments have been stalled, while a lawsuit filed by 12 white farmers against the USDA program works its way through the courts. So that lawsuit filed in June says the program that only helps farmers of color is discriminatory. In the meantime, farmers say they have faced vandalism, fraud, and bad contracts. And June Provost even filed a lawsuit against the local bank for fraudulently tampering with his loan application. So all the farmers I've talked to are really taking their cases to court to fight what's been theirs for generations. And many have been in touch with the USDA about that debt relief program. Shalina Chatlani with the Gulf States Newsroom. Thanks so much, Shalina. Thanks for having me. Coming up, activists pressure lawmakers to move quickly on medical marijuana. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The battle over medical marijuana in Mississippi has largely been confined to the walls of the state capitol ever since ballot initiative 65 was struck down in the Supreme Court. But pro-cannabis activists outside the legislature continue to try to make their voices heard. Yesterday, a new advocacy group called the Mississippi Cannabis Patients Alliance formally launched in Jackson. Angie Calhoun is the organization's founder. She speaks with Kobe Vance. The reason that I created this is that there is certainly a need for representation for the patients of Mississippi for cannabis use. We aspire to be there for the patients to make sure that they have a safe, an effective, a well-regulated program, and not only from the program side of getting that up and running, but once we are up and running, we will also be there to make sure that the industry is producing safe, clean products for our patients, and that is extremely important. And of course, we do advocate for an affordable cannabis product as well, so that everybody will have the opportunity to get the, the relief that they deserve. When it comes to the special session, next week will be, be the beginning of November, mm-hmm. and so we only have two more months left in the year, and then this, the regular session starts in January. Do you think there's enough time for lawmakers to come together and pass anything before the special before the session? And What do you think it would mean if this got delayed into the session? I absolutely do believe that if the legislators, if Governor Reeves calls the special session and the legislators are able to come together, that it will only take about a day or two for them to make the decision. The bill is written. It is very well written. Senator Blackwell and Representative Yancey have done a wonderful job at creating a safe program for the people of Mississippi, for the patients. And so if... Unfortunately, if the governor does not keep his word and call the special session, I've been told that hopefully that they will address this right off the bat in the regular session. But, um, you know, I'm very concerned, of course, that it could 
drag on. And, of course, what that means for my patients is that it's a delay. It's nothing but a delay. They are suffering now, and we need to get this up and running, the whole program, by the first of the year. And we can do that if the governor calls a special session. They can be ready to start issuing license by January 1. If Initiative 65 had not been overturned by the state Supreme Court, it's likely that residents would now be able to get that product. Um, Growers would have been able to start in August, and it's likely product would be available by now. What do you think this delay has meant for them, for those who would have been qualifying for medical marijuana already? Well, again, the patients are still suffering. Um, People just like my son, or they're having to go to an illicit market, um, or or, you know, there is the, the issue of buying a, a tainted product from the illicit market or moving to another state. I mean, our state is already declining in population. And, and I just believe it's because we are not showing the, enough compassion towards people and giving them the opportunities to have a prosperous life. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with Mississippians about medical marijuana and what it could do for people here in Mississippi? Well, I just, I'm going to just ask our patients to hang in there. I know that you are desperate and that you feel like giving up hope, but there is hope. And we, as the Mississippi Cannabis Patients Alliance, we are there for you and we are going to make sure that you get a program. And I pray that it will be very, very soon. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Angie Calhoun is founder of the Mississippi Cannabis Patients Alliance. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.